Heavenly Father, your love is never-ending. It is everlasting. It tracked us down throughout history, throughout space and time. Christmas is such a constant reminder of the chasm you crossed, the distance that you traveled to restore and redeem your children. Father, I pray that, I know that there are those of us in here going through circumstances, however big and however small. Father, I pray your love overwhelms those circumstances and that we are overjoyed at your presence in our life. Father, there are chains in here that you want to break. There are mountains you want to flatten. There are lies you want to refute. There are walls you want to kick down. Father, I pray that you do that today by the power of your Holy Spirit through our worship, through the Word today. Would your Spirit fall afresh and convict and convert. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, sharpen our focus, open our hearts to hear your voice today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Michael. Well, good morning, Trinity. I am going to begin as I did uh, with first service in a moment of, of confession in which I doubt I am alone. So would you, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I confess to you that, um, ah, Father, I, just, I was not ready to preach today. Uh, I'm still not sure that I am, uh, but I am thankful that the, the power of this is not in my word, but in yours. Father, I confess that I did not spend time in prayer this week, even like I wanted to. I did not spend time in your word this week, even like I wanted to. But again, Father, we know that you don't move an inch. You haven't gone anywhere. And you always call, you are such a good, good father, you always call your children back to you. And so, Father, I pray that um, these words... These words are not my words. These words have to be your words. We have to hear your voice speak today about Jesus as our everlasting Father. Would you, would you heal hearts today? And would you inspire lives for the sake of your kingdom? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, good morning for those who I haven't met yet. Welcome, my name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. We are in week three of Advent and of our sermon series called No Other Name. Each week we are studying through and we are applying one of the greatest prophecies or foretelling of Jesus recorded in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. And each week we light another Advent candle corresponding to an Advent theme. The first week we lit the Advent candle of hope and Pastor Kirk taught through how ultimate hope is found in no other name than the name of Jesus, our wonderful counselor. And last week we lit the Advent candle 
of peace and studied how Jesus, the Prince of Peace, did not come just to make peace between man and God, but he was the literal peace offering from God to man. And this week, we will see how Jesus is our everlasting Father and how all of the attributes necessary to hold that title are found in no other name but the name of Jesus. Although our primary text today will be those two words in Isaiah chapter 9, Everlasting Father. I want to start our reading today in Isaiah chapter 8. So join me on page 559 of the Pewback Bible in front of you. The words will also be on the screen. If you do not own a Bible, Merry Christmas. That is our gift to you. It comes with a recommendation and hope that you will read it. But join me on page 559. Again, the words will be up on the screen. We're going to go Isaiah 8, verse 11, through chapter 9, verse 7. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people call a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will snared and be captured. Bind up this testimony of warning. And seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has Dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That is God's word for God's people. Amen. In many, many ways, this was a really difficult sermon uh, for me to write. Normally, prayer and study on Monday leads to I hate my sermon Tuesday, which leads to an outline on Wednesday, writing on Thursday, and finishing touches Friday, only to question all of it on Saturday. And I woke up this Thursday with nothing but blank pages. I, I literally had the series title and, good morning, my name is David. The title, Everlasting Father, limited in word count, two. The title, limitless in depth, Everlasting Father. The text, a seeming contradiction, a child born, a son given, Everlasting Father. And all of this points to the infinite complexity of the person and work of this Messiah, this Savior, this child, this son, this prophet, this priest, this king, this servant, this Lord. The Ancient of Days manifested himself as a baby, and yet the wisest of human intellect still cannot fully understand. And of course, there are as many experiences with Father as there are people in this room. When faced with complexity, my goal is always simplicity. And so what I want to do today is I want to take the text we have, the two words, and all it contains, and handle it in three parts. That Jesus is everlasting, that Jesus is Father, and that Jesus is everlasting Father. Point number one, Jesus is everlasting. Now we know that Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before Jesus' birth. And the reason that I thought it important to read a little bit from chapter 8 is because it gives us the context in which Isaiah wrote this prophecy about the coming Messiah. In chapter 9, verse 1, Isaiah writes about the gloom of those who are in distress. And this gloom carries over from chapter 8, as Isaiah cries out to God's people who turned their faces, turned their backs on God. Isaiah is warning them about God's coming judgment through the invasion of the Assyrians. Now, if you study through the book of Jonah, or if you were, were here when we studied through it, you remember that Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, because of how wicked and violent and oppressive the Assyrians were. When the Assyrians attacked Israel, they attacked from the north, and they decimated the northern tribes, specifically the two Isaiah mentions in verse 1, Zebulun and Naphtali. Writing in his present day, Isaiah says that God humbled Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, God will honor Galilee. Now, those two regions, they sit next to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus, the promised Messiah, would spend the vast majority of his ministry. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, 
in fulfillment of the scriptures, but lived in Nazareth and used Capernaum as a home base for his ministry. Nazareth was in Zebulun and Capernaum was in Naphtali. So these two regions that were utterly decimated by the invasions of the Assyrians were the first ones to receive the blessing of the promised Messiah. Now, did Israel need the wonderful counselor who, as Isaiah said, will bring light into their darkness? Of course. Did Israel need the Prince of Peace? As Isaiah said, to shatter the yoke that burdens them. Of course. Did Israel need the mighty God who, as Isaiah wrote, will break the rod of its oppressor? Yes. But the only way Isaiah knew that any of that would come to be, and when it comes to pass will be sustained, is if the one who ushers it in is everlasting. Isaiah didn't speak this into existence. The strength and validity of this prophecy has nothing to do with the one who speaks it. The strength and validity of the prophecy has everything to do with the one who fulfills it. Jesus. Great, you say. Good for Isaiah and for Zebulun and that other place that you mentioned and those people. But no. Let's think deeper. Because Jesus is everlasting, the promises of God are not just for them then, but for you now. If you are in gloom, If you are in distress, if you are in darkness, if you see the nation, the world, mired in destruction and division, if you see the same in your family, if you battle addiction, if you cannot make ends meet, if you face a diagnosis, if you are held captive by depression, if you're mourning a loss, if you are hurting, if you are lonely, if you feel as though you cannot take one more step forward, weary saint, know that 2,022 years ago, the light dawned, for unto me and unto you a child was born and a son was given. And of the greatness of his rule, there will be no end. The extent of his peace will know no limit. His grace and mercy cannot be exhausted. Justice will come and righteousness will rule and reign forever. Christmas is a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness in the past, his provision for today, and his ironclad promises of tomorrow because the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Child, this Son, this Jesus was, is, and always will be. Jesus, because he is everlasting, His power for you, His love and care of you, and His promises about you are everlasting. But still, Isaiah takes us deeper. Point number two, Jesus' Father. Now, let us first deal with some theology. When Isaiah writes that the Messiah will be called Everlasting Father, he is not conflating two members of the Trinity. He is not saying that the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. Yes, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are all one God, three in one. This is the foundation of the doctrine of the Trinity. 
In Deuteronomy 6, Moses gives Israel what became known as the great Shema or the great prayer. It is one of only two prayers mandated in the Jewish oral law, and it is the epicenter of Jewish morning and evening prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that, that was ground, it's groundbreaking now, but it was groundbreaking back then because that was a culture that worshipped multiple gods, polytheism. But here's the thing, when Moses says the Lord is one, he uses the Hebrew word echad, which means one entity consisting of more than one part. Think one bunch of grapes. Now, this doctrine of the Trinity is core to Christianity. It is absolutely non-negotiable. In the mid-fourth century, a heresy was circulated by an Egyptian man named Arius, which stated that Jesus was not divine, that he was created, that he was not everlasting. And in 325, a council convened in Nicaea, where bishops from all over the known world came together And they did not decide the divinity of Jesus. They affirmed what Scripture revealed about the Trinity and thus refuted this Arian heresy. And from this council came the Nicene Creed, which has three main affirmations. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. And lest you think that I will not connect all the dots, it is rumored, and I'm not kidding, that at the Council of Nicaea, when Arius was spewing on and on and on about how Jesus is not divine and is not everlasting, tensions got so heated that one bishop got up, lost his cool, marched across the room, and slapped Arius across the face. That bishop's name... Nicholas, Bishop of Myra, St. Nicholas. Yes, that St. Nick. Like coal in your stocking if you misbehave, but do not think about misrepresenting the Trinity. Now, no, Isaiah is not mixed up with his theology. The Holy Spirit inspired him to declare the attributes of Jesus summed up in the designation Father. In Semitic thought, when Isaiah writes in verse 6 that his name shall be called, it doesn't refer to a literal name that distinguishes one person from another. It refers to the very nature of someone's being. The very nature of Jesus' being is fatherly. Now, for many, for way too many, one is too many, This is where the scab gets picked. This is where the wounds get reopened. Because when you hear Father, you think shame and guilt and rejection and abuse and neglect, absent, lost, harsh, temper, partial, hypocrite, distracted, and disengaged. And that treatment is beyond awful and it grieves God's heart and it's not your fault. But that is your gloom. That is your decimation. 
That is your burden and your oppression. That is your darkness. And so what is light into that darkness? What is the good news that invades those terrible experiences? Well, it's not a what, it's a who. Jesus did not come to condemn you, but to save you. He crossed the chasm between heaven and earth, not to push you away, but plead with you to turn to him. He is not selfish, but he emptied himself that you and I would be filled. He took our shame. He bore our guilt. He was despised. He was rejected. He was punished. He was pierced. He was crushed. He did not come to bring God's vengeance to you, but to bear it for you. It was his love that led him to the cross, where he died that you would have everlasting life. Sisters, if you were mistreated by your earthly father, consider Jesus who met the outcast Samaritan woman at the well and there changed her life by giving her living water for her thirsty soul extended mercy to the woman caught in adultery and from that place of mercy called her up and out of her sinful life, defended the woman of the night, the one with the alabaster jar who cleaned his feet with her hair and her tears, not only healed the woman with the flow of blood, but restored her into society and called her daughter. If you think you're too far gone for Jesus to have a purpose in your life, if you think the best Jesus will do is to put up with you in this season of Advent, in this season of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, please consider his very lineage and how these women were used for God's great purpose that that his love and favor looked upon them and he used them throughout history to deliver the father of the Christian faith. Rahab a prostitute, Tamar, seducer, deceased father, husband's father, Mary, a poor, unmarried, young girl. Women were at the cradle, they were at the cross, and they were first to see the risen Christ. Brothers, if you were rejected, cast out, forgotten, or shamed by your earthly father, please dwell on the life of Jesus who intentionally chose a ragtag group of uneducated men, some who were in in some cases almost enemies, and he invested his entire ministry into walking with them, shaping them, mentoring them, teaching them, raising them up, empowering them, and encouraging them. He gave them full access to his life. He was available to them. He served them. He loved them. In an incredible act of humility and servant leadership, he knelt down and washed their feet. He is available to you. He wants to walk with you, mentor and disciple you, shape and change your life, teach you to do what he did and how he did it. And for us all, Because through Jesus, God forgives us for turning our backs on Him. We are all empowered to forgive those who turn their backs on us, which is an incredible and unbelievable gift of freedom, breaking those chains which bind us to those hurtful experiences and lies. 
This is the type of father we all want. This is the type of father we all need. This is the type of father I yearn to be for my children and the example of it, the power to be it, and the access to it is available in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is everlasting. He is infinitely fatherly. Which brings me to my last point. Jesus is the everlasting Father. One of Jesus' disciples, John, wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three of the letters in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Revelation. In his first letter, he writes this about the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the the mission of Jesus, the person of Jesus. He writes, God has given us eternal life, and this life is is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus that you are given the gift of eternal life, everlasting life, full, abundant life now and life in the presence and glory of Jesus forever. If Socrates is the father of philosophy, Hippocrates the father of medicine, Horace the father of education, Galileo the father of modern science, and George Washington the father of our nation, Jesus Christ is the father of our salvation. He is the father of everlasting life, bringing it into existence through his birth, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Incarnation plus obedience plus crucifixion plus resurrection equals eternal life for all who call on his name. For there is everlasting life found in no other name than the name of Jesus Christ. But let's go one step further. Let's go one level deeper because I want this to land in your lap. I want it to sink into your hearts and penetrate your thoughts. The theological and cosmological and historical and practical truth of Jesus, the everlasting Father, is that you are an everlasting child. What is a father without a child? You are child forever. I'm not talking about physical maturity, I'm talking about your personal identity. And this is where the practical reality intersects with all of these theological truths. That this baby in that manger made you and I children of God forever. Theological truth, he knit you together in your mother's womb. Practical reality, you are not an accident. You are not just molecules slamming into each other. Theological truth, he numbered the hairs on your head. Practical reality, you are known by the creator of the universe. Theological truth, he pardoned your iniquity and passed over your transgressions. Practical reality, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are white as snow. Theological truth, He will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. Practical reality, you are never, ever, ever alone. 
theological truth. You were adopted into the family of God through Jesus. Practical reality. Your identity is not determined by what you do, but what was done for you. Theological truths. He rejoices over you with gladness. He sings over you with praise. You are a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. While you were his enemy, Jesus died for you. Practical reality. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Now let me close with this story. Author unknown. The story begins. My son Nicholas was in kindergarten. It was an exciting season for a six-year-old. For weeks, he'd been memorizing songs for the school's winter pageant. The morning of the dress rehearsal, I filed in 10 minutes early, found a spot on the cafeteria floor, and sat down. Around the room, I saw several other parents quietly scampering to their seats. As I waited, the students were led into the room. Each class, accompanied by their teacher, they sat down cross-legged on the floor. Then each group, one by one, rose to perform their song. Because the public school system had long stopped referring to the holiday as Christmas, I didn't expect anything other than fun commercial entertainment. Songs of reindeer and Santa Claus and snowflakes and good cheer. So when my son's kindergarten class rose to sing Christmas Love, I was slightly taken aback by its bold title. Nicholas was aglow, as were all of his classmates, adorned in fuzzy mittens and red sweaters and bright snow caps upon their head. Those in the front row center stage held up large letters one by one to spell out the title of the song. As the class would sing, C is for Christmas, a child would hold up the letter C, then H is for happy, and, and on and on and on, until each child holding up his portion had presented the complete message, Christmas love. The performance was going smoothly until suddenly we all noticed her. A small, quiet girl in the front row holding her letter M upside down, totally unaware that her letter M now represented the letter W. The audience of first through sixth grade snickered at this little one's mistake, but she had no idea that they were laughing at her, and so she stood up tall, proudly holding up her W. Although many teachers tried to shush the children, the laughter continued until the last letter was raised and we saw it all together. A hush came over the audience and eyes began to widen. In that instant, we all understood the reason we were here, why we celebrated the holiday in the first place, why even in the chaos there was a purpose for our festivities. For when the last letter was held high, the message read loud and clear, Christ was love. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was love. Jesus is love. And Jesus will always be love. Christmas is an invitation, not to a place or to a party, but to a person. Jesus is everlasting. He is Father. He is the everlasting Father, and all that He wants for Christmas is you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for, for this prophecy that was 
written 2,700 years ago that fulfilled a promise that was made all the way back in the garden that you would deliver the one who would set the captives free, who would break our chains, who would redeem and restore us from the power, from the penalty, and when the story ends, from the very presence of sin itself. Father, every one of us needs this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace, and it is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. So would your Holy Spirit meet each one where we are at today, and would you pour your love out on us? Father, Christmas is a constant reminder to us of just how far you went, that you stopped at nothing to reach out to, to save, to bring back into relationship with you, your people. And because of that, because of what Jesus did, we are called, the very nature of our being is children of God. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.